Um, all right, friends, welcome. I'm, I'm aware that uh, today is like Christmas season. There might be some traveling for many of you. Uh, maybe you're even watching uh, online, streaming this, uh, uh, this worship experience from anywhere spread out across North America. Uh, this is the season to do that. Some of you might be just getting back or just heading out uh, soon enough. And I know just traveling a lot of time involves like this dreaded thing called the layover. And anybody who has been on a layover, just that, that word in general, it's just, it just strikes angst in our hearts because you, you feel trapped. So a layover in particular, a layover, the technical definition, right, is this, this time of uh, rest or a cessation from traveling before the next leg of the journey. Sometimes we choose it. Sometimes we choose the rest, we choose the pause, because it's a, it's a road trip and we want to get out, we want to stretch our legs for a little bit, we want to enjoy a meal with our friends, with the people that we're traveling with. Sometimes we choose the layover and sometimes we don't, right? Sometimes the layover chooses us. Now, it wasn't technically like layover in between airports, but there was a time when, uh, when I was trapped in an airport, the legs of the journey that I was between was having somebody drive me to the airport with my family and before I ever, ever took off again. Uh, the location was the Gulfport Biloxi International Airport. I don't know what made it international, um, it wasn't like the type of place where you just see commercial airlines land from all over the world. Not at all. You Kind of the place that you'd expect to see like a little single prop Cessna take off on the tarmac. And I'm like, how does American Airlines even come, even come through here? I'm down south. We're down there for a wedding uh, that uh, I was there to support the, the bride and groom, of course. But my daughter was a flower girl. So it's like... <laughs> That all eyes, right? I mean, that, she stole the show. But anyway, um, we get dropped off at the airport. So I had two very small kids, my wife with me, and the voice over the intercom, which they did not need because it's a single terminal airport, is saying, you know, your flight, or sorry, your flight is delayed 35 minutes. And anybody who's experienced that, you know that that's the first of many delays, right? They just kind of, another 30 minutes, another 30 minutes, another 30 minutes. Okay, this is not a large airport with lots to do. There's just a hallway. There's not a, there's not a kid's playland that they can hang out in. There's not a food court. I looked it up. There were about 12, uh, a little more than a dozen flights coming in that entire day, period. So I'm like looking out of the windows going, there's no jets around here at all. I have no clue when or if we're even ever going to get out of here. And the only people that I knew in Mississippi just got married and they don't want to hear from me, Right. What are we going to do? We feel like trapped. We're stuck. And it wasn't an amount of Dora the Explorer that I could give my friends or my family <laughs> that was going to be able to get us through theirs. Um, that the word that just captioned the entire experience, stuck. Uh, some of you know that. Maybe a literal layover. You've had experience that travel. You've been stuck. But what I'd like to do this morning is kind of apply that onto just different scenarios into life and say some of you might be or might be heading into a life layover where you just feel stuck. You did not choose this. It seemed to have chosen you. I got to be a volunteer table leader at Reframe event, a ministry for 23 to 29 year olds this past year. So I got, uh, this past fall. So I got to know like uh, a little over a dozen different uh, 23 to 29 year olds just setting off on life, exploring themes of, of purpose and identity, work. And I got to hear from some people who said like, no, no, I lived, I trained 
to do this thing. And then one of two things happened. Either after graduation, I started doing it or I couldn't start doing it. And, and listen, like the, the levels of stuckness that I heard about as a result was similar uh, between people who are in their field and doing this thing and were disappointed at like this, this is what adulting is like. This is all there is. This is what it's cracked up to be. This is who I'm, who I'm now stuck with. Or the people who never got to enter in the first place and it's like, what have I been doing the last four years? This level of, of stuckness in the layover. And some of you, uh, Christmas, right, passed. The presents got unwrapped. What was going to get returned has been returned. And now you're, you're stuck with everything that you're, you're going to be keeping. And pretty soon you're going to open up the, the billing statement at the end of the cycle this month or the beginning of next month. And you're going to look at it and start to realize that you're now stuck paying for that thing. And you're going to have a conversation with the person that you came here with a little bit later to say, listen, 2020 is going to be the year of clarity where we get to finally like see some progress in our financial, uh, in our financial standing. There's going to be budget restrictions. There's going to be belt tightening. And you're going, going, wait a second, I did not sign up for this. Like, like you're, this is going to be the year, whether you know it or not, that, that, that you're going to feel stuck and, and caught in like trying to live on this envelope system or, or, or this like cash system, whatever it is. There's no longer any fun. There's no vacations. There's no, there's no purchasing of basically anything except for rice and beans and beans and rice, right? Like the, and, and if you could put a word on 2020 as a year, it wouldn't be clarity. It would just be that word, stuck, it was like we didn't do anything. No fun was had this year. Like caught in a layover. I was stuck. And listen, like a lot happens. Don't be fooled. A lot happens in those times when you feel stuck. But when the layover chooses you, you didn't choose the layover. Tread carefully. And I'm going to offer you a couple of cautions and then maybe an opportunity at the end. But I want to do that from the Bible, from the story that God brings his people on in this layover, this stuckness. And so if you'd like to follow along in the Bible underneath the chair in front of you, um, we're going to, going to go to Numbers chapter 11. Uh, Numbers chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, if you just like ours, just take it with you. You can steal, even from a church, even on Sunday. We love that. Also phone-friendly, so you can follow along in the Bible app. And the words are going to be on the screen behind me. Before we get to the uh, story in Numbers uh, 11, though, I want to kind of highlight a little bit of uh, what just happened to bring us up to this story. Uh, so some of you, maybe show of hands, uh, have seen the movie Prince of Egypt. Yeah, okay, awesome, tons of people. Um, so yeah, that was you know, basically a historical reenactment, entirely accurate in every way. <laughs> Um, but you know, there were fewer chariot races uh, in, in real life, I'm guessing. But in the story, I think it, it kind of highlights how our main guy here, now Moses, had a foot in both worlds. Like he had a foot, like the movie demonstrates, he had a foot in Egyptian royalty in, in that world where he wasn't, uh, he wasn't born into the family, but he was quickly adapted into the royal family. Incredible. And then he also, though, had a foot by nature of his birth, uh, his people, the Israelite people who are slaves in Egypt, who were oppressed in Egypt. And so much of his early life is just trying to navigate these two worlds that he had a foot in, each one of them. 
And, and eventually push came to shove. He had to make a decision as to which world he was going to live. And the Bible tells us the story that he lived into, which was, which was one time he saw an Egyptian oppressing, abusing one of these Israelites. And so he just lashes out and he actually attacks and eventually and murders the Egyptian, hides the body. People know about it. He has to flee. You think about fleeing and you're like, well, he's going to be on the run for a little while. When, when weeks turn into months, turn into decades, he didn't just flee, okay? He moved. He moves to Midian, wilderness, doesn't matter where that is, middle of nowhere. And he lives there for 40 years. Most of us would call that a career, okay? It's time to like be done, hang up your hat, move to Florida, take up golf, collect seashells, like whatever the thing is. It's time for retirement. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because God doesn't let him off the hook that way. God shows up in this form of this bush that is burning that doesn't burn up and says, go back to this royal family that you came from that you know. Go back to the family and just give this this simple message. Let my people go. You're going to go out of Egypt into the land I'll show you, the promised land. It's simple. Out of and into Two-step process. That's all it takes. God never says how long it's going to take to move from out of and into eventually. And so 10 plagues, we heard about that a couple, uh, we heard about that last week, right, where, where Pharaoh eventually lets the people go out in the wilderness. We pick up the story two years into this Desert experience, right? Led by Moses. He's out in the middle of nowhere with the people. They're getting a little bit on edge and they start to complain. And we pick up the story there in Numbers chapter 11, verse four, middle of the wilderness, two years have been going on. We just start off with two simple words that says in verse four, the rabble. Now the rabble with them, they're, they're, they're gonna be, begin to crave for this different kind of food. But I just wanna highlight the rabble. Because the rabble is going, to be, is going to be important because usually, you know, we don't use that word rabble too much. You think like rabble means like there's a discontent people who are always just kind of expending this toxic sideways energy, complaining to everybody who has listened and many who won't. Um, but it doesn't matter because they're just going to talk and complain anyway. These people of discord rabble. But the way that the author uses it here is actually a more technical, precise use of the term. He's using it to describe a specific people group. You see, a week ago when we heard about the 10 plagues and we heard about the the hail locusts and the darkness and the rivers uh, turning to blood like this, this incredible scene that took place to eventually Pharaoh, the head guy in Egypt, saying, listen, listen, I'm not just going to allow you to leave. Please leave. Leave me alone. Get out of here. And like wants them to go. And the Israelites, we learned, finally they went. They went out of. Step one, complete. They weren't the only people who left that day. See, as it turns out, the rabble also left with them. We tend to think, if you've heard this story before, we tend to think that it was, it was only God's people, the Israelites, the descendants of, of Jacob who wrestled with God and was renamed to Israel and had 12 sons of 12 tribes and the Israelites in Egypt who grew and grew and grew. We tend to think it was just them who left. But, but in actuality, the historical record shows, really, it was anybody who was discontent with their life in Egypt. And that was probably a fair number of people. So this could be anybody who just, 
I don't know, lost their field to a recent flood of locusts or lost their riverfront property when it turned into blood. Like anything, any of the plagues that just wipe somebody out and they're like, there is nothing for us here, we're gone. It was also probably everybody who was also enslaved in Egypt from a different people group. The time came where Pharaoh said, go, get out. And they said, this is our one chance. This right here is maybe the only opportunity we're going to get. And so they would just kind of snake in the crowd and go along with. In fact, there's a really interesting historical thing where you could totally nerd out on this, where there was actually a nomadic people group that started immigrating in, in, into Egypt and started really growing in, uh, in influence and started to threaten the, uh, the, the, the government there. And so the Egyptian overlords actually commanded them to say, oh, no, no, you guys go too. This is your chance, whether you want it or not, to go. And so I just want to point this out because I think it's important for our story to say that when, we, when we're going to see some of these people start to, start to complain, these people of discord, the, the rabble, they, they were not the Israelites, which is, isn't like a, like a race or genetic thing at all. This is a simple point to saying these are not people who grew up on the stories of God's faithfulness. They did not know who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. They didn't, they didn't grow up learning the story of God since before they could even speak, before they knew the words of the language that, they, that would come out of their mouth. They didn't know God like that. And so I just, I want to put it out there because I think it's going to be helpful to us to, to notice that it is the rabble, the voices of discontent that are loudest with the most intensity and the most frequency of complaint are the ones who know God the least. And I, I just think that's going to be helpful for somebody, especially today, who's maybe not in a layover. And maybe you don't feel stuck. Maybe you're like, listen, man, everything is humming along just fine. This has been a banner year. And we'll see what happens in 2020. But I just want to say, when, when things are like humming along and everything is fine, I think it might be worth checking yourself and saying, listen, this, this could be my opportunity to cultivate trust in God when I don't need it so the relationship exists when I do and I will need it eventually. So this is a rabble, the people who don't know God. They, they're complaining with the most intensity, the most frequency, but really it kind of takes hold as to just about everybody in the camp, that much we know. And so the rabble with them, we continue on, and began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, they're joining in now, if only we had meat to eat. I get it. Verse 5, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Listen, they were an oppressed people group subjected to abuse, even murder. I submit to you that the cost was built in. Okay, it continues on. Also, listen, listen to how he describes it. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, whatever those are, onions and garlic. It's like he's describing a trip through the aisles of Whole Foods. Organic, non-GMO, it's amazing, all local. Um, verse six, but now, 
Now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. So when a commentator writes about this and he said, this is what we do. This is, this is all of us. And he said, we wrote, when there's a contrast between this manna, uh, uh, think like saltine dust, paints a picture. Um, when, when we contrast the saltine dust between really whatever it was, it probably wasn't all of this, but whatever it was, we have this tendency to romantum, romanticize the past and minimize discomforts. Discomforts was probably putting it mildly of what they experienced in Egypt, but nevertheless, that's what we all do. In the contrast, in the stuckness, in the layover, you should just know this about yourself because you're human, like I'm human. This is what I will do when I feel stuck. I will romanticize the past and minimize whatever discomforts I was experiencing then. It wasn't that good. It never was. But I can trick myself into thinking that, I, that it was. Okay, um, this is what they're doing. Oh man, the cucumbers, the melons, onions, garlic, this whole thing is incredible, especially particularly now, because the only thing we have is manna. What's manna? That, that's the point. What, what is it? What, what's manna? So, so manna is this Hebrew word that honestly in English Bibles, I wish they would have just translated it as it was said. Um, manna, it, it literally is those three simple words like all mashed up together in one Hebrew word. It, what is it? That's what they called it. What is it? Now, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's going to be important um, to the story, but also to your story, that we see this manna as, as something supernatural, as the, as the miracle it was. Because sometimes people come along, it's historical kind of stuff, and I get into it every once in a while, too, with like archaeologists, archaeology, and like, you know, did the walls of Jericho fall down? It was Jonah really in a whale, like all this sort of stuff. And I kind of like dig into like other instances that stuff like that happened. And I nerd out on that a little bit, so some of you might, too. Uh, so, so listen up. You're... You might come across things every once in a while um, that will say things like this manna that appeared in the desert. This was a naturally occurring phenomenon because it has happened before. So this is going to paint a picture. Um, How it comes about is in that region of the world, the Middle East, um, particularly in maybe uh, early summer, think like like June, mid-June sometime, uh, there's this dew that would set in and develop on the rocks and leaves and sand even kind of all around. And because of this tiny, these tiny insects that were in season at the time, because of their excrement on the rocks, I said it was going to paint a picture. Thanks for coming to church today. The dew would mix with that, and it actually had a sweet, almost honey-like complexion to it. And so the people, you, you, they would gather this stuff, and they would actually eat it. And it was actually, because of the sweetness, the, the sugar component to it, it was somewhat nutritious as, as, in terms of like it has calories um, as, as well. And so you're like this naturally occurring phenomenon. And I just, that's not the point of the story. And, and we know that it's not the point of the story because it wasn't just early June that the manna appeared. It was all the time. Every morning. It was everywhere that they went throughout the entire desert region for not a month or a year or two, but this would happen for 38 more years, 40 years in general. And they lived on that manna. And even the name, they knew what it was to live outside. 
They knew this stuff existed, but when, when they saw it, this particular thing, they called it, what is it? We've never seen anything like it. It was so special to them that they even gathered it up, put some in a jar, tucked that jar in a crate, God's holiest holy crate called the Ark of the Covenant, and stashed that in the holiest place they knew in the back of the temple that nobody was allowed except for the high priest once, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And they wanted to keep it there with the other holy stuff because they wanted to remind future generations, listen, that God accomplished this, that God brought them to the wilderness and that God saw them through. Now, this is incredibly important that we realize this as the daily miracle that it was because this could be the hardest thing that God is asking you to learn in 2020. The layover that you experience, the wilderness, the stuckness that you experience in the next 52 weeks, that might not be in spite of God's provision and power, that might be because of God's provision and power. What I'm simply saying is that if the manna in the wilderness was God's miraculous doing, whatever you experience this next year, good, bad, somewhere in between, God could very well have been bringing you into it. And we have to be open to that possibility. And this gets very real and very hard very fast. So I'm going to bring you to a different time, um, remarkably different time, uh, 12, 13 years ago. Uh, I graduated in, uh, from college 2006. I hung out with a lot of people who graduated in 2007. Some of them uh, just poured into, poured into uh, studying, getting prepared for a very specific career in whatever it was. And it seems like a distant memory now. But there was a time when 2007, 2008, we were in like just the, the beginning stages of the, the Great Recession, where graduates were like, hey, finally, I'm here. Let's get life going. And it is just crickets. And so I've got these friends who've spent four years, five years preparing to be teachers. Well, what's your major? Education. Oh, what are you going to do with that? Obviously, I'm planning on teaching. I mean, they're doing like every, everything right. You know, secondary education, high school teacher, elementary. This is, this is the track that I'm going for. This is what I'm going to do. They graduate. Who's, who's ready to hire me? Which school am I going to go into? And it's like nobody. And so they end up bussing tables. They end up uh, jumping from landscaping company to landscaping company when things slow down in the summer times. I, I mean, they're just like trying to make ends meet any way that they can, pay off the student loans, uh, make the, the payments every once in a while, and, and then maybe have a little leftover for rent and groceries. Like that's all. It's daily living, daily provision. Things start to get better. 2009, 2010. They're getting interviews. I've kept my teaching certificate up to date this entire time, paid the fees, sitting down, having to explain why for the last three years they've been bouncing from landscaping jobs to restaurant jobs instead of teaching or instead of education, like the people that they're interviewing against have come right out of school 
And they don't have to justify the fact that they weren't in a system, weren't teaching this whole time. And so I just, I talk to people who are like that delay. 10 years ago, I feel like it set me back. Eight years have gone by. I still feel behind. I still feel the waves of some of this stuff. It's still with me. Why? Why the stuckness? Why the layover still? Yeah, I'm uh, 35 now, so I could just, I remember, and I know some of, these, uh, some of these weddings that I went to of friends of mine that, you know, didn't exist then, but like this Instagram perfect wedding where it's just the whole evening is absolutely as magical as it possibly can get and elaborate and expensive. And you think, man, spending so much money on a marriage like this, how could it ever fail? <laughs> Those two things are not related as it turns out that now you're hearing secondhand, sometimes firsthand from one of the couples justifying and, and saying the reasons how they got to this place. And, and now that they're ready to just be done, divorce, I'm over with it entirely. And walking with some of these people as they're arguing about a blender. And you know this is not about the blender. This is frustration and this is anger that my future, my life was robbed from me and I have to start all the way over again. Now, in our 30s, 40s, 60s, like whatever it is, why stuck again? So listen, people will tell you that in the wilderness, people will tell you that in the layover, nothing happens. Nothing happens at all. And that's the frustration about it. People will say that. But you know that it's not true. Anybody who has experienced a delay in an airport, you know something happens. When you're in the little waiting area with like 120 other people who are expecting to be somewhere else in a couple hours, when you're in that waiting area and the voice on the intercom comes over and says, this is you know, going to be another half an hour or worse yet, we're going to have to cancel the flight you know something happens. Everybody goes up to the counter to ask the same question and voice the same protest. Everybody goes to the counter. It's not true that nothing happens in a layover. Complaint happens in a layover. Resentment builds in a layover. Bitterness starts to grow in the layover, in the stuffness. You know it happens. A question, since it happens automatically, is what can we do? You cannot choose your layover. You can only choose your response to it. Let's see, let's see what Moses does. He's out there with these people. It's two years. There's going to be 38 more of them. He's already done. Verse 11, he asked the Lord, listen to these questions. Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you, to put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell them, why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat to eat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy. If this is how you're going to treat me, go ahead and kill me. 
if I found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruined. He's done. He's spent. He's at the end of himself. Now you think he's no better than the rabble. He's no better than the people who didn't have the stories. He's no better than everybody else. But notice within there what he does, the difference, because everything lies there in the difference. Instead, instead of taking his complaint and bitterness, allowing it to grow and spread and touch poison everyone around him, he takes it, in those first few words we see, he takes it to the Lord. He takes it right to God and says, hey, listen, there's this giant mess, just this this venom, right, that I've been dealt. And he takes it to God and says, like, here, can you do something with this? In fact, I I, I think you're the only one who can do something with this. My friends, this is the language of trust, taking it directly to God. Complaint happens automatically. Trust must be chosen. And here Moses, he's modeling for us what that looks like to trust, to say, listen, I think that you brought me here for a reason. You did not plan to bring me here without a plan to get me out of here. I'm here. This time is not wasted in waiting. I'm here for a purpose. What is it? It's this language of trust that God has the answers. And he knows that God has the answers even if he doesn't get any, it helps him live there and learn there. Fun story, true story. Um, 1927, 28, uh, James Braddock is an American boxer. He's a light heavyweight boxer, which means he's, he's almost in the highest weight division. He's good. He's very good. He's not excellent. He's got a record that's like 85, 90%. Um, and it's not like championship level, but it's right knocking on the door. I mean, he knows he's good at this thing. 1927, 28 happens. Um, he breaks, he's right-handed. He breaks his right hand in a fist. Uh, it shatters, does not heal well, continues to break after that. Meanwhile, he's losing fights, dropping in the rankings, dropping in, in earnings purse as well. 1929 hits, the Great Depression sets in. There's no money for anybody. He's got a broken hand. He can't even do the one thing that he used to be decent at anymore. He gets a job working as a longshoresman on the docks, working for shipping and construction companies in New York City. He's working on the docks with a broken, kind of splinted up right hand. If you've seen that 2005 movie, The Cinderella Man, he's played by Russell Crowe. Uh, it's a, based on a true story. We're talking about the true one here now. But, but it, it depicts a number of things that happen there uh, with accuracy. He's working, as he says, with his broken hand. He's basically doing the work of two hands with just one his left. 1930, 31, he and his wife May, they're not making it. 1932, 33, it's clear. They're just about done. His buddy, fight promoter, and also manager says, listen, there was a last minute cancellation. Guy dropped out of a fight against, uh, who, uh, against a very well-respected fighter. They just need somebody. During the Great Depression, if we sold tickets, somebody's going to show up to give them a show. We want to put somebody in the ring. Do you want it to be you? It's like tonight. And he says, why not? What have I got to lose? He steps in the ring as a severe underdog in three rounds. Jim Cinderella Man Braddock 
knocks out his opponent. Everybody's talking about this guy. He, he, he learns throughout that time. He, he learns throughout that time that breaking his hand, he thought was the worst thing that could have ever possibly have happened to him. I mean, he almost lost everything. He certainly thought he lost his boxing career. It was during the times on the dock, working exclusively with his left hand, that actually became stronger and stronger and stronger. He came back into the ring as a better fighter than he had been previously. He gets more fights on that win. He continues to win fight after fight after fight. In fact, true story, uh, Jim Braddock, because of his earnings now and being this, this incredibly successful new fighter coming on, he took some of the earnings. He went downtown City Hall to New York to pay back his government assisted that assistance that was given to him while he was laid up off from work like everybody else was. He comes into this thing now. It just went after what he has the momentum behind him. He got his name, the Cinderella Man, because the sports broadcaster heard about what he did, calls him this thing. Everybody's behind him. He gets a shot. At the title, he got, Max Bear is the guy's name is. These two people could not be further apart. Uh, Jim, the Cinderella man, uh, was over on this side. I mean, he's like down on his luck. He's a rough guy. He's working for this construction company as a longshoreman like a year and a half ago. Max Bear comes from generational wealth. He's a Hollywood actor in his spare time. I mean, he's, a, he's 10 to 1 underdog. Jim Braddock, a Cinderella man against Max Bear. 10 to 1 odds. Nobody expected the guy to make it out of round three. He goes 12. 12 rounds the entire fight. It goes to the judge's scorecard. They decide in judgment the winner, Jim Cinderella man Braddock. This guy is the heavyweight champion of the world. He takes the earnings that he won from the fight. He buys the construction company. Eventually, he loses the title to Jim, uh, um, Joe Lewis. But um, he takes it, buys, the, buys the construction company, little house for he and his wife to successfully retire into. Everybody gets their happy ending. It comes back to this one singular defining moment that made him his broken hand. He says, that, what I thought would do me in, saved my life. It's the language of trust that we have as a people of God to say that whatever layover, stuckness that you find yourself in last year, this upcoming next year, God did not plan to bring you here to leave you here without a plan to leave. He didn't. He didn't come from heaven, born into this world on Christmas that we celebrate, and then to suffer and die, to leave us here. The God who planned to bring you here has a plan to get you out of here. Trust him in the middle. What do we have to learn? I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together. gracious God, you brought us here for a reason. God, whether our story is one of humming right along, and we know in the back of my, our minds, we know that there's going to be hiccups, there's going to be delays along the way, or our story is one of stuckness after stuckness. God, give us the courage like Moses to turn back to you 
and to say, all of this poison around me, I will choose to trust. I'll choose to believe that the God who loves us to death and back again is a God who's doing something, even with this, even now. Gracious God, we pray this in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would like us, someone to pray with you, we have a table set up in the back during this last song.